You want a polite, modest, bland, and bleachy, clean biography of a Canadian icon? This is not it. You want fistfights, groupies, drugs, drink, and trashed hotel rooms? Set to the soundtrack of a smoking hot rock trio fronted by a once-in-a-lifetime guitarist and featuring an all-star cast including Bon Jovi, Bill Clinton, and two Beatles? Did I mention the book begins with a blind man driving a tour bus on an icy I-95? Then this is the book for you. That said, The Best Seat in the House, My Life in the Jeff Healy Band by drummer co-manager Tom Steven is a respectful book. Despite recent acrimony with Healy's estate, Steven clearly loves the man, the music, and the memories, and is on an evangelical mission to get the Toronto guitar god into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Who was Jeff Healy? If you even need to ask, then you definitely need to read this book. A towering, charismatic, blind guitarist who played a unique style of a guitar. He made his mark playing blues-based roadhouse rock, selling a combined 3 million copies worldwide of his debut album, 1988's See the Light, and the 1989 soundtrack to Roadhouse. His biggest hit single was the John Hyatt ballad Angel Eyes, which barely scratched the surface of the depth of his talent. As a Hendrixian guitarist, with all the virtuosity, curiosity, and eclecticism that comparison implies, he had no shortage of famous fans. Stevie Ray Vaughan, Stevie Wonder, B.B. King, Albert Collins, Dr. John, Slash, Jimmy Iovine, Patrick Swayze, ZZ Top. You're a motherfucker, Chuck Berry once told Healy after the Toronto Trio backed up the rock and roll originator. James Brown had similarly profane praise. Jeff, you're one motherfucker of a guitar player, and your band's cool too. Jeff Healy knew he was brilliant. He wasn't a modest Canadian, and he wasn't a fool. It can be argued, however, that it might be somewhat foolish to piss off rock gods Keith Richards, Mark Knopfler, Bob Dylan, and even George Harrison. They all encountered what could easily be construed as the arrogance of the young Canadian hotshot, when really the strong-willed Healy just thought he was doing what was best for him and the band. And despite everyone in the biz telling Healy almost nightly to ditch his rhythm section, which happened to feature his co-manager Tom Steven on drums, the guitarist stayed true to the trio who drove through blizzards with him and came to his instant defense in more than one rowdy roadhouse brawl. There were lots of fights on the way up and on the way down, physical altercations with patrons with record execs, with Stevie Ray Vaughan's manager, but never with each other. Tom was the pushy manager who dared to pull double duty as a musician, an industry no-no, as everyone in the industry told him time 
and time again. Maybe they were right. It's hard to be the disciplinary enforcer in the band when you were drinking until dawn with the rest of them on the night before the morning after. On one such rough morning, Tom got a tut-tut from none other than Ringo Starr. Tom's chut in the mid-80s led him to show up cold in New York City, hoping to run into fellow Canadian Paul Schaefer and be introduced to someone who could get Healy a record deal. Days later, he left New York City with a nine-album deal from Arista. Tom had street smarts he learned growing up in St. John, New Brunswick, where many of his classmates ended up in a local jail where the Jeff Healy band played a gig years later. One of his classmates died in prison after murdering four people, including two Hell's Angels. Today, Tom is no tough guy. However, the wisdom of age allows him to fully admit when he was a total asshole, and his memoir is remarkably candid and self-aware. The Jeff Healy band didn't end well. They became estranged as Healy moved on from rock and roll in the 2000s, and devoted himself to playing the kind of early jazz that was always closest to his heart. He'd been collecting old 78 RPM records since he was a kid. Things eventually got so bad between the original trio that Tom was disinvited from Healy's funeral in 2008. Healy died of cancer at age 41. Facing his own health concerns now, Tom is worried that Jeff Healy's musical genius is in danger of being forgotten, and this warts and all page turner of a portrait is destined to secure his legacy. The time for bitterness and bad blood is over, and now the full story has been told by the man who had the best seat in the house. Coming up on today's podcast, the drummer and former manager of the Jeff Healy band, Tom Stevens. Bye.
Bob Steven, formal drummer and co-manager of the Jeff Healy Band, uh, presently on a book tour, uh, on a book that I wrote with uh, Keith Elliott Greenberg called um, Best Seat in the House, My Life in the Jeff Healy Band, um, and I'm presently on a promotion tour uh, promoting the book. Awesome. Uh, the mission is to uh, let's not forget Jeff Healy, mm -hmm. and uh, that's really what I'm up to right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, the problem with going back and writing a book is things get lost, like the book said at the beginning, uh, due to, I mean, you know, there was a lot of parties and et cetera and so on. And uh, my deal with, with the co-writer, Keith yeah, yeah. Uh, Greenberg, was when he did the interviews, yeah. whatever people told him, you know, I'd read it, but if it seemed like it was true, even if they said Tom Stevens a jackass, it went into books. Um, the drinking thing came from a friend of mine who was close with Jeff and said to me, you know, Tom, part of, part of the reason you and Jeff had issues was when Jeff quit drinking, um, apparently... There's what's called a, um, what is it, uh, not promoters, but when you contribute to someone's alcohol mm -hmm. situation, yeah. enablers, enablers. Yeah, and in my own life, um, the last tour I did with the band, I quit drinking for about a year and a half. Oh, wow. And uh, it was probably the most boring damn time of my life. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, yeah. With with a wiser old age, I, I regulate. And, yeah. Uh, I tend to drink when I'm in Canada, and I don't drink so much when I'm in the in the states. Why uh, why why is that? I, I think when I'm in Canada, I just feel like I'm having a great time. I have a lot of good friends. <laughs> and uh, whereas in America, uh, they I'm on a visa, so I don't want to get kicked out of the you country. <laughs> you're on your best behavior. Yeah, best behavior. Nice. I mean, I'm not I'm not in America that often, but when I live there, I. It was interesting. Uh, at the at the end of your book, um, you're in the East Coast, and were you at a concert? And um, Tom Carkin was there, and he from stage. He's, you know, why the f isn't Jeff Healy in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? And you go, yeah. So I, I, I was curious. Like, was it was it, you know, writing writing the book when when you set out for it? That wasn't the purpose to to sort of use it as a promotional tool to help. Uh, to help uh, your old friend Jeff Healy get in, get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, was it? No. Um, I mean, I could easily say it was, but it wasn't. Sure. I mean, it, it was really more of a... You know, I've been on the sideline for about eight, nine years. And what happens is other people start telling a narrative about both myself and the band. And, you know, I'm not here to pick arguments or fights, but a lot of it was really starting to bother me. And uh, I kind of thought, you know, that's, that's not what happened. And, um, you know, no matter what people think of me, uh, it, we certainly wouldn't be the first rock and roll band in history that ended up with uh, an estate that was ticked off at uh, one of the band members or whatever like that. In fact, you could almost not write a rock and roll book if something like that didn't happen. I mean, that's where it goes. But I love Jeff, and I still do. And uh, contrary to what people may or may not think, um, me and, 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 uh, and I include in Joel, if you're out there listening, um, we were brothers and we beat the odds and we started this thing together when no one else gave a damn and uh, couldn't get a manager, couldn't get an agent, couldn't get a record company. Uh, the reality is, here's this genius of a guitar player sitting in front of Canada who's been on CBC television since he was a kid playing guitar. Um, at 11, he's a spokesman on music. I mean, the guy's a musical genius, mm -hmm. and he can't get a record deal. And 
when I met Jeff, it was, hey, what's going on? Uh, well, you know, I can't get a deal. Well, why not? Well, it's, uh, people tell me I'm going to be in bars the rest of my life, or, um, mm. or it's too gimmicky. Or in a couple of Jeff's own interviews, he said, you know, I'd really, I really was thinking I was going to end up not being in music, but I would be like an engineer or in, in some radio announcer or some world like that. That would have been a friggin' disaster, in my opinion. Um, losing that kind of um, that kind of uh, talent. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm answering the question. I'm sorry. If it's not like wrong. it's like my sixth interview today. But the that that was the reason I wrote the book. Now, I, I read an interesting review. I think uh, in the Globe and Mail or wherever the other day that that pretty much said uh, former drummer throws uh, beloved um, 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 Canadian icon under the bus. And I was kind of like, that's one guy's opinion. I'll tell you this, that, that guy has not read the book. I, 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 you know what, it's interesting you say that. Has not read the full book. A bunch of people have said that to me because yeah. I, I, like you never want to cry about, okay, if that's his opinion, but to get to where he got, there's no way he read the book. No. I, I couldn't believe that he wrote, read the book. Yeah. But you know, what am I going to do? Now, I was at an event last night, 350 people in the room. Everyone came up, shook my hand, got an autograph, whatever. Yeah. They've seen a lot of the promotion. And they're genuinely interested in buying the book and reading the band's story. Yeah. And that's what it's about. Yeah. If you don't like me, I don't care. Buy the damn book. Make up your own mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, fair fair but, enough. But, fair but enough. here's the good news. Yeah. The fact that 350 people last night gave a damn. Yeah. yeah. I walked in that same room a year ago. Yeah, well, you know, some of my friends said hello, but no one really was like, hey, man, I saw you on the news, and what's yeah. going on, and I'd like to know more about Jeff. So I'm already starting to get nice. where I'm hoping to get. Good, good, good. And you and me are sitting here, and yeah. we wouldn't be sitting here if I didn't write the book. No, no, and I, and I still remember, it was, it was, I don't know if funny is the word, but I, I remember watching, um, I, I don't know if it was uh, the video for Angel Eyes or um, uh, See the Light, um, but... You always had gloves on, and I, I remember that about you, playing the drums. You always had, had uh, the black gloves on. Um, was that that, that? that was my being cool face. Was, was that? <laughs> but that's um, so. so in, in terms of images, you know, from videos, like I remember, the drummer always wearing gloves, and I, and 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 I always thought that you, and the bass player were brothers. You know, it, it's funny because to this day. I've, I've had people come up to me, Joe, how's it going? And I try and figure it out because Joe's probably like 6'1", six, 6'2", six, and I'm like 5'8", and, <laughs> and I'm a stocky little guy, and Joe's you know, a, a, a kind of a long guy. And, uh, but throughout the whole career of the band, I got it constantly. And uh, yeah. um, for any insults that Joe took on my behalf, I apologize. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, it was a brotherhood. Yeah, and and um, I don't want to belabor this article, but it, it made me realize two things. In this country, there's two camps. There's a camp that thinks that Tom Steven is, you know, an idiot. He took advantage of Jeff or whatever. There's. I was interested to see some of the comments online where guys who really didn't like me in the music business. Uh, several years back, came to my defense. Major guys, hmm. guys like Bob Roper, people who. You know, we, we would go head to head. And I was shocked to see that. But what it told me was they were at least respecting my efforts and not agreeing uh, with, for instance, uh, the CBC thing where I'm nowhere to be found. Um, 
why I'm addressing this isn't as a gripe. It, it, it's more to say I had to write this book mm-hmm. or I was being erased from history. And in a sense, by them trying to erase me from history, they've erased Jeff from history in a real sense because I can be in L.A. nowadays and say, uh, someone go, well, I heard you were in a band. What band? Wow. Uh, Jeff Healy band. Hmm, who's Jeff Healy? Yeah. Whereas a couple of years ago, everyone knew who Jeff Healy was. Yeah. Um, now you got to go to, well, the movie Roadhouse. Right, that guy. Yes. That band. Yeah. Man, that's not cool. Like, like a guy or a conversation, I've sat in many rooms because I'm still, you know, in the music business somewhat. Um, who was the greatest guitar player? Who was one of the best? And Jeff won't be in the conversation. And I'll go, well, you know, I played with this guy called Jeff Healy, who I consider one of the greats. And by the way, guys like Stevie Ray and B.B. King and George Harrison agreed with that. Um, and yet, you got to take the time to explain it. So I've gone a long way around from Tom Cochran to get back to the original question. When I sat in the room several months ago in Halifax, I didn't know Tom was playing. It was a private party in Halifax. Um, I was down there for a, a friend was being uh, brought into the Hall of Fame, uh, Business Hall of Fame, and he had a surprise party after. No one knew Tom was playing, 100 people in the room. Fourth song in, out of nowhere, Tom starts talking about Jeff Healy. And everyone in the room starts looking at me because they're all my buddies and they're like, you know, and they're like, oh, yeah, Tom probably slipped Tom, you know. And it wasn't. Tom didn't know I was there. And he started telling some great Jeff Healy stories. And he mentioned the band and the tour. And, you know, and he ended up by saying, why the bleep isn't Jeff Healy in the Hall of Fame? And that became my boom. Like, why the fuck isn't he in the, pardon me, why the heck isn't he in, in, in the Hall of Fame? And uh, when Tom was walking out, he saw me. Big hug. Um, we went out after, had a few drinks at a, at a, at a reception. And I said, Tom, I got to tell you, man, is it okay to use that quote? Because that sums up the whole thing. Yeah. And at the time, quite honestly, I was thinking of not putting the book out. Um, I was having. What is that? I think, you know, it, it, I felt kind of like a rescue dog in that, you know, you get these dogs and they've been beat up so much, and then you take them home and you're nice, but if you put your hand up to give them food, they duck because they're so used to getting smacked upside their head. And I think. I was feeling that way somewhat. Now, I'm not crying. I'm just saying. Um, what's 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 the use of doing this if you're just going to get smacked it, upside the head again? Well, not even that. But I didn't want to stir it up and turn Jeff into a controversy. You know, I really wanted this to be about remember how great this guy was. I told the story as honestly as I could. And man, if you if if if, if you read the book. There's a lot of people, including my friends, who thought I was a total jackass. It's in the book. I didn't pull any punches. And uh, um, Jeff, I told it as straight as I could. And again, why I don't believe that guy read the book is because, man, Jeff was like all throughout that book. Great, great. The greats are all like Paul Schaefer saying how great he is. Um, um, you know, obviously BB and all these greats saying, you know, Jeff he was one of the greatest or was the greatest or is the greatest. Yeah. And uh, he was. Uh, talk, talking about Paul Schaefer, t- tell me that's, that was a, I don't know if I could ever do that or you don't hear stories of that anymore. Where you, so no record deal. Um, and you knew of Paul Schaefer. I don't know if you actually knew him. Nope. Um, but you knew that if you went down there, here's you know here's a a Canadian, in 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 the U.S. in New York City, who might have some pull. 
tell me about that story going down and, and uh, trying to meet him. Well, we weren't getting anywhere in Canada. Yeah. And uh, now, you know what? Let me let me pause. Is it was it because they thought that it was just gimmicky the way he played the guitar? Yeah. Was it was it because he was blind that you know he's never going to make it? Was was it as simple as that that they never gave him a, a chance? Jeff had told or gave me, you guys a chance. Jeff had told me that one fella had said, "You know, Jeff, you're always going to be in clubs. You're a club guy. You know, and, and it's not going to go any further than that." Um, throughout our career, you'd always hear, "Well, you know, it's a gimmick, or it's, uh, or, or he's a blind guy, or you know, cruelty being cruelty, he's a circus act." And hmm. and uh, and in my own career, in trying to get deals in Canada, I had record executives say, "No, like." You know, he's, he's all right, but he's, you know, a lot of it's because he's a blind guy. And my question to them always was, if you close your eyes, you don't know that, and you listen to him, fuck it. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter if he's blind. He's great. That's what matters. And it wasn't until we got to Clive Davis. One of the first things that Mr. Davis, actually, um, to be clear, it was Mitchell Cohen. Uh, the story got a little screwed up in, in the book and lost in translation and Hopefully we'll rectify that in, in the documentary. But the um, it was Mitchell Cohen who eventually came upon the material I had tried to drop off to Paul Schaefer and basically was getting kicked out of NBC and ran into the drummer who was nice enough to invite me down to what they called the showcase where so-called A&R guys were. But to show you how green we were, I didn't know what a showcase was, I didn't know what an A&R guy was, and I didn't know where the club was. But... I got in and I had one thing we had accomplished is we had a lot of good press from Canada. We were probably at that point the top bar band in, in Canada. But by being the top bar band in Canada, that record company guy's prophecy was sort of becoming true. Mm. And bar bands only go so far and, sure. and, and, and you know, so as a band we're like, no, there's more to this. Like Jeff can be, you know, one of the greatest. And keep in mind, Stevie Ray had already jammed with them, and Albert Collins had already jammed with them, right in his own hometown, and people still aren't showing up to, to, to sign the guy. You know, so, so you got to say to yourself, you know, I love my country, man, but it, they're not getting it, so let's go find someone who is getting it. Yeah. Um, through that little episode, um, eventually one of my packages ended up on uh, on. Uh, Mitchell Cohen's desk, the A&R guy, who I now know as artist and repertoire. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he flies up and he sees a band. And a few weeks later, we're sitting in front of Mr. Davis. And the thing Mr. Davis said, and he was clear about this, was, Jeff, I don't care if you're blind. People are going to hear you on the radio. And they're not going to know who you are or what you are or if you're a blind guy, a tall guy, a short guy, a round guy. But they're going to know you're great. And that was really what sold us. It was in me at least. Yeah. And uh, and to the that label's credit, they never ever played off of the blind thing, never. And more importantly, Jeff was not into playing off the blind thing. I mean, if Jeff heard me call him a blind guy, he'd probably kick me in the butt. Yeah. Jeff was a very independent, fiercely independent guy who knew what he wanted and did what he wanted to do. There's a lot, a lot of uh, fights in the book that you guys had. Not, not. I, I don't know physical. I don't know physical, but like ver or? verbal, verbal spats. Tell me, you, what did you tell him once? You told him once. Uh, why don't you go out on the street and start selling pencils or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, just, he just laughed at me because he knew he was great. You know, yeah. he's never going to be. Out. I mean, 
we had it. But he's very confident. Like he, like it, it wouldn't make him feel bad. It seemed like it's like it, you know, I, I know who I am. Jeff was one of the most confident human beings, and and and, and probably to this day is one of the bravest human beings I ever knew. Mm. Period. And um, and not because of disability. I mean, I, I, wait a minute. I guess that's a bit of a, makes me a bit of a bullshitter because to a certain degree, I was always awed by the fact that Jeff fearlessly would jump into a crowd of you know a couple thousand people and find his way back to the stage and get his way back to the chair and I mean it was pretty damn incredible he was a he was a unique individual and what I ran into that in my mind uh, again hindsight being 2020 was he was determined he was fearless but he was also very strong in his beliefs about what music was or wasn't or should be or, or what he wanted and what I'm realizing in doing these interviews, I forgot about how the press sometimes can chop that little piece sure. where you say, yeah, you know, Jeff could be difficult, like I noticed on a piece on the news the other night. But they leave out the part, but he was difficult because he believed that was what was right for Jeff and the band. Yeah. So that's why I keep saying, just read the book. Don't, don't listen to the press, <laughs> even though I'm here trying to promote the book. Um, um, you know, he's a unique Canadian individual who, in my opinion, ranks up there as one of the great Canadian musical icons. Absolutely. And he's really got to be remembered as such. And I'm going to throw in, and the band, you know, we deserve to be sort of remembered as well. Um, we were on that journey. And back to the bus metaphor, uh, I can't remember the paper now, the, the guy that, the, I think he started off as, you know, basically Stephen Throw's beloved icon under the bus. Yeah. Let me tell you something, man. Let's go to that metaphor of the bus. No one wanted to get on our bus. No one wanted to drive our bus. Um, we drove that damn bus to millions of records sold, to the White House, to 24 Sussex, to the Queen, to George Harrison, to all the greats. Mm -hmm. I mean, that bus had a really great run. And let me tell you something. Jeff drove that damn bus. No one was throwing Jeff under any buses. <laughs> I, I just want to make that clear. I want to. Uh, oh boy, I, I just set myself up there. Yeah, you yeah, did. Yeah. <laughs> great, great segue. You start. You start the book off with, uh, with uh, you waking up on was I don't know what I ninety five or something. I think it was I ninety five. I ninety five. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know you're, you're like, like everyone who sort of wakes up. You, you where? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is my bed. Or yes, that's right. I'm in a hotel. You wake up. Yes, I'm in a bus. And someone's telling Jeff, turn right, turn left. <laughs> he was driving the bus. And, and in a snow, was it a snowstorm? Yeah, it seemed to be. Uh, the, we, you know, I kind of had actually forgot the story. And um, I can't remember which interview where it came up. And I was like, man, yeah, I forgot about that. And why it, it rang true in my head was like, yeah, because we've been in England. And, ah, you yes. know, I was, it's a bit of a haze, but in England, the bus driver's on the right side of the bus. So when you're walking down the bus, there you are. The driver's usually on the right. And I'm like, Man, I'm a little hungover, a little tired, and you know, are we still in England almost? But no, no, we're in the States, I'm pretty sure. Like, and there's Jeff driving the bus. And I'm sure someone told Jeff, you can't drive a tour bus down a highway when you can't see. And uh, there he was driving the bus, which is a metaphor really of Jeff. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's fantastic. If we want to throw bus metaphors around, there, there you go. go. There, I, I have no more bus stories or questions asked. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but so you're very self-deprecating in the book as well uh, about 
your skills in drumming. Yep. Um, you you admit that a lot of people felt that you weren't a great drummer. You admit that you needed to you know sort of tighten up your skills. Um, how did you get into drumming? Um, I kept getting kicked out of class from like grade seven through to grade eight or nine because I was always banging on things with my pencils or whatever. Mm. And uh, at home, I was always banging on my parents' pots and pans. And eventually, I think around grade nine, grade eight or nine, um, Christmas time, you know, my, my dad bought me and my mom bought me a, 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 a secondhand set of cadet drums, which I set up in the, immediately set up in the basement, or sorry, actually in the garage, and uh, beat the hell of them for two weeks. And <laughs> probably uh, they were really happy to see me go back to school after the Christmas break, because my sure. dad liked to drink, so it, you know, playing drums, I now recognize hangovers and drums are not a, a no. great mi mix. <laughs> um, but it was, it, was, it was a love that I just, in, I just loved it, enjoyed it. It was a passion. And um, I started buying records and got a set of headphones like you're wearing there and played to The Who and played to Led Zeppelin and yeah, played to The Rolling Stones yeah. and played to The Beatles. And uh, I took a couple lessons. There's a guy called Peter Conway who, who had gone to Berkeley, who was an incredibly excellent drummer, like could blow me off the stage, you know, with his left hand. But he was an older guy and he was nice enough to sort of teach me a couple things about separation and this and that. But that's, that's as far as it went. My first band was grade nine. And uh, really what it was, was that drummer just wanted a double set of drums. And I ended up mainly being like a drum roadie. I was just That's right, you my, were the roadie, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just carrying the drums around until I realized, well, wait a minute, man, I thought I was supposed to be playing. And the guy said to me, well, Tom, um, you gotta understand, this is very complicated music. And you know, we're in grade nine, we, we, like, we had like three <laughs> chords, right? And, and I'm like, well, dude, let me explain it very simply. Um, there's not gonna be a double set of drums unless I'm playing one or two songs tonight. And I got to play. And, that was my whole career of playing drums in a band maybe five times. Yeah. Now you flash ahead, I don't know, uh, 10, 10 years, I'm in Toronto, and I just started going to jam sessions, and I love jamming. All right. And um, my cousin Dave Steven, Dr. Dave Steven Slice, who's no longer with us, unfortunately, he would, uh, we'd play sports, and after the games, he'd take me down to the Hotel Isabella, and we'd watch these jam sessions. And one time, there's a, for one reason, I think it was Danny Marks, and there's a drummer wasn't there, or couldn't be there, and um, Danny Marks says, is there a drummer in the house? And my cousin, being my cousin, just jumped up. Yeah, my cousin Tom's one of the best drummers ever kind of deal, and it was all, oh, man. And I go up, and we start, and we're 30 seconds in, and Danny pretty much stops the band, and he goes, you're not a drummer. <laughs> Get off the stage. <laughs> And man, like, you really could hate that guy. But yeah. what he really did was he kicked my butt to the point where, oh, yeah, I'll show you. And so I started playing every jam I could get to. Yeah. And then I got to play with a guy called Hawk Wads, who was a legend. Um, the or, or Sorry, the Downchild Blues Band. I, oh, yeah. he, he, so I got to play with Hawk for a while. And then this guy, Buzz Upshaw, who was incredibly great guitar player, Ala B.B. Uh, King, he said, listen, man, he goes, you know, you got some time issues in that. He said, but I really like your style. You hit him hard, and uh, I'll try you out, man, when you come and play. He was the first guy who didn't want to use my drums or didn't want to use my reel-to-reel, -reel, or he wanted me to you wanted jet actual play actual in his play. band. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, to this day, Buzz is no longer with us, but I owe him the fact that he gave me, he mentored me. He taught me mm -hmm. 
how to play drums. And Jeff used to come and see the band. And uh, he really liked the band and loved Buzz. And one day he said, hey, you know, why don't you come down to Grossman's and sit in with me? And uh, I did that a couple times. And he said, hey, I really like your playing. I like you to be in my band. So at least back then, I was considered a great drummer as far as Jeff was concerned. <laughs> um, um, you know, then I met Joe through uh, a jam with a keyboard guy. One of those keyboard dudes that, you know, in the old days, they had the keyboards that were like guitars. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, his name escapes me at this moment, but, and told Joe about Jeff, and then uh, Joe came out and sat in. And uh, that's when the band was, you know, rounded out and that was the final lineup um why i think jeff liked me is is he liked me for as much as what i didn't know as what i did know because it was free for him yeah and it was a jam so me playing the headphones to the who or to this or that i just beat him whatever way it felt and jeff never played the same thing twice the same way and i love that it was free for him jamming all the time and uh joe who was probably a lot more probably the most trained musician amongst the three of us, mm. uh, jazz background, etc., um, seemed to fit in. Wow. You know? Now, later on when we're being called a lousy rhythm section or this and that, the only defense I have to that, and again, it's in the book from other people, Paul Schaefer um, thought our band was great. Yeah. You know, And he said he loved playing with us. And what he loved was we didn't rehearse. You know, Okay, let's go in the studio, lay it down, and yeah. where it ends up. Now, having said that, there's a lot of engineers out there who made me sound great because there's a lot of bass drum parts that had to move over here. And, <laughs> you know, I'm not an idiot. I understand that. But the thing I didn't understand is how do you play 2,000 shows and get worse? No, <laughs> you, you always know? get better, don't you? Yeah. Well, yeah. you're supposed to, but For according sure, to yeah. some of the critics didn't see it you that you way. You got worse. And, uh, but that bone aside, Jeff stayed loyal. Yeah. And it would have been so easy for Jeff just to throw us out the door, especially when you hit the States. I mean, these mm. are the serious guys. And... Uh, he didn't, and, and I, I credit Jeff with being a loyal guy sure. and hanging in. Yeah. Listen, some people say the same thing about Crazy Horse, Neil Young's long time back in band. You know, yep. They wonder, like, why the heck does he play with these guys who, quote-unquote, can't play? Um, and it's, 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 it's the jam feel, like, whenever you go to their concerts or see any of their live footage, um, they're, they're in a zone together, and uh, you, pro you guys probably had that same... I, I, I think... I think we had that the first four or five years. Yeah. And, and, and I'd like to point out here that in, um, I think it was Billboard, the average life expectancy of a band is about three, three, three to five That's years. It, eh? You know, it's wow. almost like pro sports. Mm. And we made it to almost 18 years, give or take. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there were great times and there were rough times and there were great gigs and there were horrible gigs. Um, one thing I'll say is Jeff, Jeff never had a bad night in his life. Um, he was just an incredible player. Um, you know, if anything, I could screw it up a couple of nights or Joe might, you know, have a clunker here or there. But Jeff was pretty incredible. And uh, to use the word genius, I, I don't say that loosely because I watched the greats like Clapton and people like that watch Jeff play. And they were blown away by Jeff. And these are some of the greatest guitar hackers, not hackers, but guitarists that ever were around. So all I'm saying is I can't think of any other blues band that came out of Canada at that time as a power trio um, and did what we did. Yeah. You know, obviously you have the triumphs of the world and 
and uh, Rush, of course, which, I, by the way, I'm not comparing us to Rush. I'm not an idiot, nor Triumph. Uh, it was a whole different thing. Um, Down Tall's Blues Band, they had some fame there, uh, Powder Blues. But really, in the 80s and 90s, we were it. And, uh, and uh, you know, again, I'm blowing my horn a little bit here, meaning the band's horn, because it's in doing these interviews, particularly with some of the American uh, radio guys, they're like, man, you guys were the shit. And I remember when I first saw you here and there. And and like, and yet in my own country, you get slapped upside your head. Yeah, I, th- I don't know <laughs> if that's a Canadian thing even. I, I remember hearing um, George Strombolopoulos um, talking about it. It seems to be a Canadian pastime that you, that Canadians love to tear down their stars. You know, like you can't get too big. You're a Canadian. You're not supposed to be so successful or massive or huge or you need to come down a bit it seems to be i don't, I don't know what it is um it's weird though it's strange well it, it's a double-edged sword because on one side when you're on the road and you run into canadian bands and roadies they're always the coolest mm-hmm. you know they're pretty easy going and uh like canadians are you know they're, they're pretty chill like you'd be in england you run into a bunch of canadian guys in a band and the roadie guys Number one, our roadies are the best in the world, and I don't care who wants to argue with me about that in the States or England or Australia or anywhere else. Uh, I, we travel the world, and I, you know, we work with everybody, and our guys were the best. I think part of that is small population, large country. Yeah. So when you're touring in Canada, when we first started, you could drive for stretches where you couldn't even get a radio station for a day. You know, there was no satellite or this or that back in those days when we were starting out in, in the um, mid-'80s. Um, the second thing is, I don't think Canadian artists have the eagles of, of what you run into with... Uh, the Brits are almost... Um, um, and, and this isn't a shot, it's just how the system works. The Brits are almost royalty in mm-hmm. rock and roll. Um, and the, the Americans are, you know... Man, if Steve Tyler walks in the room, God just arrived, you know? Yeah. Whereas, you know, Tom Crockett can walk in the room and everyone's kind of chill and cool yeah. about it. And, and uh, that's... You leave him alone. Yeah, they'll leave him alone, <laughs> let him do his thing. And, you know, yeah. and, and you know, Tom's a great guy. I mean, I, I want to do a shout out to Tom Crockett, only that, A, for saying what he said that day, it meant a lot. B, he gave us our first national tour to Jeff Healy Band, mm. uh, which really gave us our first big shot. Uh, B, when, when Jeff discovered Amanda Marshall, um, um, he uh, gave Amanda her first national tour, which really, you know, gave us a leg up on her career. Um, so kudos to Tom. But as far as Canadians tearing down their own, I'm on the fence. I can't make up yeah. my mind. Fair enough, yeah. yeah. I'm not trying to be a politician. Yeah. Enough, but, but, <laughs> I mean, I just got killed the other day, so I'd be the first guy who probably should be agreeing with that. But I think at a certain point, people have to have their own opinion. And yeah, sure. you, you got to roll with it. I do think, as Trump says, we're a bunch of communist socialists. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, as such, maybe it's like that old lobster pot thing where, you know, if one lobster's getting out, they want to pull you yeah. back in sort of deal. But no, as, as a rule, I found Canadian audiences best in the world. Yeah. You know, hmm. Canadian uh, press, 50-50. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. How, how about this? The guys who love me are the best, and the guys that don't yeah, piss true. off. Right? <laughs> how, how did you become the How did you become the manager of the band? Was it just like no one wanted to manage you? Was yeah. it as simple? Was it simple as that? In my book, yeah. I mean, look, I, I, 
I, I was up here finishing the master's in urban planning environmental studies. So clearly I was on a professional course and I finished my degree and I had a job and I had a plan. The drum thing was to make some money to put my way through school. I had a short-lived career as a bouncer at the Alma Combo till uh, uh, my first fight, a girl beat the hell out of me and strangled me with my own tie. <laughs> so I, I did see- That was my, a funny story. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see much future in that. And uh, um, I, 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 uh, I, sorry, I lost my, my train of thought there. Um, in terms of being a manager. Yeah, so, so in Buzz's band, um, what I realized was um, trying to get four musicians in the same place at the same time anywhere is like herding cats or trying to staple mm. jello to the ceiling. Yeah. And I had a construction background in, with my dad's business, so I'd been a foreman on a crew. Um, it was a pretty rough and tumble business, and uh, so I wasn't scared of that much. So I was like, okay, how hard can this be? And, you know, I, I wish I knew the answer to the question before I took on the job. but. So I, I was a little aggressive, and, and as, a, as, as a result of that, as I read in some of the interviews in the book that I didn't even know, even some of my friends said I was a jackass and way too pushy and whatever, but when I sat down with Jeff, you know, I said, what are your goals? What do you want? Because I don't want to just be sitting in Grossman's for the next 30 years. I love Grossman's. I, I go there anytime I come into Toronto, and when I'm in town, like for, uh, I mean, I live here most of the time, but... I try to get to groceries once a month or whatever, um, but I didn't want to live there for the rest of my life. Fair, yeah. And uh, and more importantly, Jeff, I remember I got a little drunk one night and I phoned my mother to break the sad news that I uh, was leaving my job as an urban planner and I was joining a rock and roll band and uh, we were going to go to Japan and we were going to go to America and we were going to go to Australia and we were going to go all everywhere. and. She knew I'd had a few drinks, and she said, that's nice, son. Now you go to back to bed and get some sleep. But later she told me that she realized that, you know, I meant what I was saying. Yeah. And, uh, and we did it. Now, no one wanted to manage Jeff. No one wanted to be our agent. So I want to be clear here. I wasn't the manager de facto. We were a team, you know. I... I I became that guy that went out and hustled the record deals and whatever. Joe was the guy that kind of took care of the business of the bookings and this and that. And Jeff was the star and, uh, and the interview guy and obviously, you know, with no Jeff, no band. Yeah. I mean, I'm never going to sit here and tell you. I mean, I remember going to interviews and a lot of times Jeff wanted me and Joe to be in the interviews because he really wanted this to be a band at the beginning. And, you know, I, you'd be sitting in the room and you knew that as far as the interviewers went, they couldn't care if me and Joe turned into a pile of dust, they'd be just as happy, you know? And, and that's cool, you know, I, I understood that because Jeff was the star. So a long story gets you to this. It's, it was an invention of necessity. Mm. If we're gonna get anywhere, and in the book you'll find, uh, Steve, Steve Herman tells a great story uh, Steve's now the vice president of uh, Live Nation Worldwide. And he was our agent back in the day. Off and on, he was throughout Jeff's career. And uh, he told us a story, again, that I forgot. When we couldn't get booked into COPA, which was the uh, university circuit, couldn't get arrested, no one cared. Wow. And uh, back in those days, the university circuit was a big deal. Live bands mattered, and that could be 40 gigs in a year, which were lucrative and built your career, and then you got to your audience base. So what we did is we, we formed a company 
and uh, again, I forgot about this till the interview. And uh, we got our booth, and we set ourselves up as an agency. And our, the only agency thing we knew about was we got in there, and there's people everywhere. Set up Jeff's guitar, and said, "Give her Jeff," and he just started blasting. And in about through maybe two minutes, they came and shut him down. But in the next 10 minutes, 30 people lined up and signed us up for a bunch of gigs. And that's how the whole thing started. Started to be creative. Yeah. 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 And you know, in a weird way, I, I, I talked to a lot of rappers. And we were doing what rappers are doing now. We were like selling records out of the back of our car. Um, it was a hustle. 24-7 hustle, hustle, hustle. Yeah. And, and we were all into it. You know, like at that time, there's no agents, there's no record companies. We were brothers, we're having a blast. Uh, we were starting to make decent money to go play in a club, meet girls, hang out, get free drinks. I mean, I'm thinking, man, this is pretty good life. <laughs> and uh, and uh, but then it, then it got serious. We're, we're, we said, okay, we formed Forte Records, and we had a mission statement. And the mission was A, to get ourselves signed, and B, to help other Canadian acts get signed. And we were successful in that. I think Amanda Marshall was uh, a major act in Canada. Uh, I later was uh, lucky enough to break a guy called Cole Capsis. Um, um, you know, since then, I've, I've signed a few acts that didn't work out in, in, in the long run, but I've signed an act every couple of years, and, uh, and, uh, and I'm still at it because I love doing what I do. Um, I'm going to say something that will get me in trouble, but I believe that I had a lot to do with Jeff's success, mm -hmm. as did Joe and obviously Jeff. Would Jeff have been famous guy if he never met me or Joe? Who knows, jump ball. Um, I do know that up to the time I came along, and then later Joe, um, not much was going on. To be clear, we never made a decision and left Jeff, Jeff agree. I just want people to 100% understand that. Mm -hmm. And it really had to be unanimous. Now, when you're a three-piece band, there's a wee bit of a problem because if you don't get a quorum like three guys all agreeing, there's always going to be one guy with their nose slightly out of joint, yeah. which could cause a little friction and did here and there. But most times, those things would end up in a good laugh. Later on, unfortunately, you know, sometimes it wasn't so funny. Yeah. But as long as Jeff wanted to do it, he only had to, only one other person had to agree with him, right? Well, actually... Like if, like if it was you and like, Joe... Like, like, like like in theory, all three of us had to agree, but if Jeff decided this is what we were doing, you're that's doing what it. We were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> star of the show, right? Yeah, for sure, you know, absolutely. There's there's tons of, of, of people that that you guys met, you know, rock royalty, um, you know, Keith Richards, BB uh, King, Eric Clapton. Um, oh my, oh my goodness, there's there's tons. Now I'm going to look at my notes. Um, Mark Knopfler, George George Harrison, Bob Dylan. Um, the Queen, Bill Clinton. Um, I'm it was funny your your BB King story meeting him twice. Um, yeah. Tell me about the so let's start off with the first time that that you met BB uh, King. You you were like a kid working at your cousin's. Yeah, my kid. I, I mean, the odds of this are, I don't know. A guy, a guy, one of the guys interviewed in the book said, you know, sometimes you can think Tom is full of crap with these stories, but he goes. He's one of those guys that stories seem to fall around. I'm only saying that because this is kind of demonstrative of, of, of this story. I mean, it's a bit of a mind blower. 
My cousin brought B.B. King into, um, I think, the Queen Elizabeth High School gymnasium back in the uh, 70s um, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And B.B. Uh, King missed the first show. His flight had been snowstormed in. He got stuck in Boston. And it's a disaster because the tickets weren't all sold. So it's kind of like your first night is going to move the next two nights. And I'm watching my cousin in a panic because he really rolled the dice in this. And it's a big deal to bring B.B. King out to mm -hmm. Halifax, East Coast, Canada. And on top of that, when he finally does get here, the limo breaks down. So I pick him up in a 77 Trans Am. <laughs> <laughs> and he has Bebop in the back, which is his road manager. And these were portly gentlemen. And, you know, to their credit, they didn't bitch. They got in jammed into this Trans Am. The only thing where I went wrong was uh, I had an 8-track in a 77 Trans Am, and I'm nervous as hell. I don't know, I'm 19 or whatever. And I uh, push in George Benson. And we'd make it out of the airport, and we're just hitting the highway, and the tour manager back says, uh, son, turn that shit off. <laughs> so, so I thought, oh, good start. But when we got to the hotel, Mr. King said, um, Tommy? He goes, uh, I've heard about this Bucky Adams guy. He's a Bucky's fantastic sax player from Nova Scotia. And he goes, I understand he jams around town. You know where he might be. And I said, well, I, I believe he's playing the middle deck, which was a famous room in Halifax. Is and still is. And uh, he goes, I would very much like to see him. Can you come back and pick me up and take me over? And I'm thinking, well, I, I don't know, you know if the car is fixed or whatever. He goes, oh, no, no, just this is fine. And I'm like, wow. And I took him to see Bucky Adams and a Lucille in the back seat is his one of his Lucilles. And he sat in and jammed with Bucky Adams. It was magic. Now flash ahead, we're the Jeff Healy band. We've gone out to Vancouver, join Expo. We had a gig, not at Expo, but we figured we'll be around the action. And we get out there and the room's closed that we thought we're playing in. It's under construction, they're being turned into a country western place. And on top of that, we have no place to stay, and they put us in a boardroom on a bunch of cots. And I'm out to find this agent who I really candidly want to kill, and it's just a mess. And uh, the guy phones me up, and he goes uh, through the hotel, and he says, great news. This American band was coming up for the lunch slot at Expo. They got in a car accident. They can't make it, so you guys got the slot. And I'm thinking, man, agents are tough. Like, <laughs> these poor guys might be dead for all I know, but, you know. And we get the gig. It was horrible because, you know, Jeff's the kind of guy you tell him to turn down. He turns <laughs> it off. <laughs> no, yeah. And, 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 you know, as he said, you know, ankle gray heads and ankle butters. That was your lunch crowd, paying, you know, 50 bucks for French fries and a cold hamburger in a lunchtime slot at Expo. And having said that, we were making good money, and we had a place to, you know, sleep at night. Yeah. So it's like, well, at least we're here. B.B. King's announced the plane on the weekend. Bulbs go off in my head. Let's get Jeff in to meet B.B. King. We only had day passes. So I basically conned our way backstage with, with the limo and Jeff, and we get back there, and uh, the guy's going, oh, man, you, uh, Stevie Wonder's in there? And I didn't say yes, I didn't say no, but when a tall, you know, blonde dude got out, the guy realized that, the, you know... Wrong blind guy. <laughs> wrong, wrong blind guy. But, you know, keep going, Jeff. We go in the door. And the cool thing about the way Jeff played on his lap is all he had to do was flip open his case and start playing his guitar. 
and he just started yeah. blasting out notes, man. And people kept sticking out their head out, his BB's band, and then Bebop, the same guy from years earlier, was still the road manager. I think that was his name, Bebop. He walked by us a couple times, and a half hour, hour, whatever goes by, and all of a sudden, we're summoned into Mr. King's dressing room. And Mr. King says, hi, Jeff. It's a real pleasure. By the way, i got to say, Mr. King was a class act and a gentleman, one of the greatest entertainers we had the privilege to meet. Uh, Jeff loved him, obviously, because of his association with big band jazz, and he played with Louis Armstrong and all, all, all the greats that Jeff just worshipped. So here we are. Jeff rips this lick off, and B.B. King literally, if I have the picture, literally leans back. My, 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 Jeff, I've never seen anything like that. You're huh. remarkable. Then he looks at me. He goes, I think I know you. And I'm thinking, no way. <laughs> what are the odds? And he says, uh, I think your cousin was the only guy who ever tried to sue me in my career. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, this is all this hard work, and it's getting blown away because of some crazy thing that happened in my childhood, basically. And he just laughed. And he said, uh, Jeff, um, why don't you come back tomorrow night and um, get on stage? And I thought, oh, man, it's a blow-off. There you go. You know, no, I thought it was. Oh, you thought, you thought he was just saying that. Yeah, yeah. And, and then he goes, you know what? In second thought, come on up tonight. Wow. That was the kickoff. We stayed in Vancouver for a month after that. We played every room. Um, and we flew home in, in, uh, in, I think, business class back in the day when you could actually afford it. And we had some bucks in our pocket. And uh, that was our lunch. Mr. King, awesome. that, that was our lunch. He really gave us the, he annoyed Jeff. I mean, Stevie, Stevie had already done that, but BB is, you know, the royalty of the blues. Sorry, man, I'm talking a lot. No, 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 no. This is this is good. This is good. Um, meeting. You you met even Bill Clinton. You met twice. You met him when he was a what was he when he was a senator first? Governor. 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 Yeah. Governor of Arkansas. Yeah, that, that story is, 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 to be very candid, came from a third party. And I recollect that we put it in because as far as we could figure out that it happened. And then he, he alluded to that when we met him in the White House, mm. where he kind of said, I, you know, ha-ha, you know, I told you I'd be president. But he also ended the conversation when, uh, because the reason we were there, he was great pals with uh, Ronnie Hawkins. Yeah, and, and it yeah. was Ronnie Hawkins' Ronnie birthday Hawkins, yeah. in Washington, and there was supposed to be a jam session, and Jeff loved Ronnie. And uh, we all went down for Ronnie's birthday. His manager, uh, Thompson, I'm just trying to think of his first name, had set the whole thing up. And I give those guys kudos. And Clinton was supposed to come and jam for, for the birthday, and that didn't work out. Next thing, these real-life Secret Service guys are asking us, you got a shirt and tie, and what's your Social Security number? And for whatever reason, it ended up me and Jeff in the back of a limousine, and there's Ronnie. And, and his wife, and it's like, well, where are we going? Ah, you know, because Ronnie was a card man, a great guy, great sense of humor, and he's like, yeah, you boys just, you know, blah, blah. next thing we're driving into the White House. And they come up, and they tell you, okay, speak when you're spoken to, and you have five minutes. Well, we were in there a good half hour to 45 minutes, <laughs> and Ronnie told a couple jokes that I thought, oh, my God, we're going to get thrown out of the White House. And uh, Clinton, you know, he matched them. Pound for pound. <laughs> and then he got into a great conversation with Jeff about music. And uh, and then at the end, he goes, uh, he mentioned the referendum. So I think it's around the Quebec referendum. And then all of a sudden, he goes, oh, you boys are Canadians. And uh, yeah, well, he goes, well, then 
He was like, get out. You can't vote for me. You can't vote for me. <laughs> I've been spending 45 minutes with you guys now. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know. But he, he was probably the most charismatic human being I've ever met. So you guys had had a chance to have Mark Knopfler and George Harrison uh, on a couple of records. Yeah. Um, and it's very interesting when I was reading those stories about you know them coming in and and playing and and what Jeff Healy did to the to the songs like toned there like I don't know what what the technical term is but tell tell me about that. Yeah, but I want to clarify that because yeah. because this was not a knock on Jeff and and I, I've noticed it's been taken out of context so much so. Um, what Jeff did, I mean, you can turn up a sound and, and you can turn up someone's part or you can turn down someone's part. And, you know, in Knopfler's case, he'd, he'd been good enough. He wrote us a great song and uh, we didn't actually meet him. He just sent us the material. He played on it. He put his vocals on it. Same with George Harrison. And uh, for whatever reason, Jeff felt that it should be down. And it was a bit of a discussion amongst us. And uh, Jeff did what he felt was right for the band and for him. And so I can't knock him for that, but it because I was a point guy, it caused some issues with the guys I had to deal with. They were like, "Well, what the hell's wrong with you guys, man? You got a Beatle, yeah. you got Mark Knopfler, who's you know in the hottest band in the world on the planet." And uh, Knopfler was not happy about it. In fact, years later, and again, I forgot about this. Um, we were on a show, and we were supposed to play his song, and he went on before us and played played our. And he song. played that song. So, yeah. So. You know, and again, these are things you forget that interviews come along, and uh, and I, then I remembered that, and then I remember his drummer was his manager, the not, not the drummer in Dire Straits, but the drummer in Nottingham Hillbillies, who was a lovely fellow. Um, and this negotiation was going on. You know, we need Mark to come up. Can we get you a helicopter? I mean, whatever. And uh, and finally, the manager said to me, "Goes, Tom." You guys are basically a bunch of twats. He goes, you're idiots. You, you turn down the part of one of the greatest guys in the world. Yeah. You know, he's not showing up. You know, in other words, he stopped being a plain Englishman and he gave it to you straight yeah. up. And that was that, you know. Um, now, that certainly didn't help our career. No. But, again, Jeff drove the bus. You know, it was, yeah. it was his ship. What, what, was the, what was the issue with, uh, with George Harrison? Again, just... By the way, Same we, sort of thing, right? Yeah. It, by the way, it never became an issue with anybody okay. ex except that, you know, the record company was kind of like, well, you have George Harrison on his record. Why isn't his background vocal plus Jeff Lynn and the guitar part? And again, it, I think it was it was Jeff's call. Mm -hmm. um, um, so I want to be clear. I, I'm not knocking Jeff for that. But what I, what, what I will say is Jeff was about what Jeff was about. And you're not going to sway Jeff with some superstar or what the record company thought or what Tom Steven thought or Joe Rockland thought. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, Jeff was his own man and that was his decision. Did it help us? No. Yeah. Did it hurt us? Somewhat. Um, but did the records get played a lot? Hell yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, it all balanced out. Yeah. I mean, you guys were huge. Just just huge. Uh, with, with the number of records and singles that came out. Like, over... I was shocked that I, I read was over three million records, the debut album and Roadhouse combined, yeah. at least. Yeah, around there, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's I mean, huge for a Canadian act, yeah? Well, uh, Especially, well, I mean, for well, a blues well, rock well, trio. Well, a blues rock trio, it, it was not only huge, it was, um, I mean, let's be candid. Uh, the label kind of figured if they knocked out 100,000, they'd have a good day and send us on their way, you know? Yeah. We'd go do a little touring. Um, 
I'm good for a few more minutes. Yeah. Um, 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 when, when Age of Eyes broke, though, it was like a du double-edged sword in that, um, in that um, you know, I, I hear two stories. I, I, I saw an interview the other night where, where, where uh, you know, one of the guys, uh, I think it was on CBC, was saying that Jeff loved, you know, loved that song. And the reality is he didn't love Age of Eyes at the beginning. No, and, yeah. Yeah, it took him some time to figure it out. But when he nailed it, it, it was huge. Yeah. And it did become, you know, a top five hit. But there was mixed feelings about that song in that, on one hand, it was our ticket. It just, we exploded, yeah. and at the same time, we have the movie coming out, and, uh, uh, you know, Roadhouse Blues is happening on the rock station uh, for the movie, and Angel Eyes is on the crossover, which was AAA and whatnot in those days. And, uh, I mean, we're all over the radio in America, Canada, UK, Germany. I mean, boom. To the point that we were driving, I think it was in Seattle, and I'm looking out the window and the promoter's in the car, and I said to him, uh, you know, there's all these beautiful girls and people, and everyone's having a good time, and they're all heading for this park, and I'm going, like, what's going on over there? And he goes, Tom, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are happening. Yeah, <laughs> and that's when I realized, holy smokes, like, things are really, uh, things are happening here. Like, it's, you know, it's taken off, and it was like, bam. Now, the flip side of Angel Eyes is, I think we were probably more of a kick-ass trio as opposed to, you know, laid-back Angel Eyes. But the uniqueness of, of Jeff was that he could play anything. I mean, literally anything. I saw him sit in in Spain with a, a classic uh, cellist and uh, um, whatnot, a uh, harpist, and, and he fit in as much with him as he did with us. I didn't know that he was like also a trumpet player yeah, or something. Absolutely. I mean, later in his career, that's he, he put that on the road and made some records. And uh, uh, I mean, even in our career, he, you know, we in fact, uh, our label put out his first uh, jazz record. Wow. Um, um, and and you know, again, Jeff lived his life the way he wanted to live his life. And you know, for all those out there who think I shouldn't tell a story, it's my opinion. You know, they're entitled to theirs. Um, I wrote a book. Read it if you think uh, if you want to know more. And if you think I'm an idiot, don't read the book. <laughs> you know? Can you give me five minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. Because yeah. I know I know you need to be surprised. Yeah. yeah but that's okay. I'll okay. Um, as as I was going through the book, I was going through very quickly. I'll be honest with you today. Yeah, no, no but as I was going through, I said, okay, where's where's the big fight? Where's the massive? You guys come to blows and you break up. Um, Blows? Oh no! No, there was, and there wasn't. Oh no, we never hit. There each wasn't. Other in yeah, our yeah, lives. yeah. Because no, no, no. I was, I was waiting for that to be the the point where you guys actually break up. But it was more of a you guys got dropped by a record label, and you said, okay, I, I guess that's it. Like, was it? Well, no. It, 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 you know, even, I guess it was the final straw that broke the camel's back, sort of thing. I, you know, I don't know if there was a final straw. I, I, I think I became the bad guy somewhat. I think there's a lot of frustrations. Um, there's a there's an argument in Germany that I think kind of was when I realized at least that it was over yeah. um, um, You know, I'd hurt myself as well So if I was already not a great drummer I certainly wasn't playing better because I had a nerve condition and at one point I was playing with a tennis ball with a drumstick through a tennis ball I mean, it was it was just getting it was kind of just getting messy and yet it's funny the record that we just finished which to this day I, I really love that record uh, feel this um, was it Feel This or, gosh, no, I can't remember, but the last record we did as a band. And uh, we had had a, a major deal with Atlantic Records, and Mr. Erdogan had passed away, and, you know, new management, and it, they, they, they frankly were just tired of waiting for us. So it was like, you know what, guys, 
you know, you're kind of at the end of the, it's a Rocky and Bullwinkle show at the end and the guy that's sweeping up behind, well, you guys are behind yeah, that. Yeah. You know, that, it was that kind of deal. And, uh, and it, it just sort of petered out and it became clear that Jeff really didn't like being in the band anymore. And I, I, and I now know I don't think he wanted to be in the band for a, a long time previous mm -hmm. to that. And I think there was moments where he wanted out. There was moments where he'd come back in. Um, one of the things I, I remember watching an interview recently of Jeff, and he said, you know, the funny thing is, um, the band was named the Jeff Healy Band. And he goes, you know, and yet so much time was spent on trying to be rock and roll stars there on the music. And uh, my partners, Tom and Joe, were really the guys that wanted to be the stars, and yet here it was called the Jeff Healy Band, mm. you know, which, which told me a lot. I kind of wish I'd read that or saw that many years many ago. Many years before, yeah. Yeah, sure, yeah. because in hindsight, man, I know I screwed a lot of things up. I'm not sure. an idiot. You know, there's a lot of things I sure could have done better. Uh, I, I regret a bunch of things. I would have said that a year ago. I thought I did everything perfectly. Yeah. But in writing the book, I realized, man, I screwed this up, I screwed that up. But the sum total is, you're sitting here interviewing me today, so we did something right. We did something right. Yeah. As I was getting near the end of the book, um, I was thinking it must have been really hard for you to relive a lot of the memories after Jeff had passed away and the family was telling you or you were, you were hearing that the family didn't want you around. They didn't want you at the funeral. They didn't want you at certain places and so on. Um, that must have been... And you, you, flew to, was it, you flew to New York, you had to sort of get away from everyone and, and sort of disappear. Well, three things. Um, first, I'm getting a lot of calls from press, like what I thought about this and that. I was embarrassed in that, I'm, you know, get lost, don't come to the funeral. This is a guy that, you know, I was with for 18 years. I, I spent more time with him than my girlfriends or family or whatever. Uh, my bandmate Joe, um, you know, basically left me a, a message. Never really, I never really talked to Joe much thereafter, except for one or two times. So that was a bit of a kick in the head. Um, I don't know what that was about because, you know, contrary to whatever the heck anyone wants to say, I spoke to Jeff a few times, and, and in my mind, we made our peace. Now, look, I'm sure Jeff kicked the hell out of me and said a lot of bad things about me over the years. And, and to tell you the truth, he said plenty of bad things about Joe, and that was our way in the band. We take shots at each other all day long. I don't know if Jeff were alive today if we'd be talking or not. I'm not going to sit here and, sure. and, and try and predict those things. What I do know is I should have been at that funeral. Um, I also know that, you know, it was to the point I was going to put a cowboy hat and just go sit up, you know, outside the church. But then I thought it through and thought, well, you know what? His dad and his kids, um, I'm not going to go and make a ruckus. They don't want me there. I won't be there. That was the honorable thing to do. and I came down on the side of honorable and I was still a cocky stubborn guy even then but that was the right thing to do and I did it was it easy no to this day it hurts like hell um, um, you know I'm sure the estate has their reasons uh, uh, um, and uh, you know I I'm not necessarily fans of the estate I don't really have an opinion one way or the other um, but I will say this I was there day one and I was on that damn bus along with Joe. Yeah. And uh, I know what I know. And uh, I've done my best to honor Jeff, honor his memory, honor his talent. And going back to Tom Crockin, why the hell isn't Jeff Healy in the yeah. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Have you 
Have you and Joe spoken since? I know in the book when you finished it off, you hadn't. No. No, still not, no. eh? No, yeah. I mean, I mean, look, Joe, if you're listening, no problem. You know, love to talk. Yeah. Um, I, it, with, with Joe, I would say this. I, I have more questions than anything. I, I don't have particular anger. It's more like, you know, why? The, the, one of the things that happened with Joe that is in the book because, you know, I give Joe a lot of credit in this band. I'm not taking any shots at Joe at all. We all worked our butts off, and it was a team effort. And, you know, without all three of us, who knows how far sure. we would have went. But my question only was when they put a record out and they stripped my drum tracks off. And uh, Joe... And your photo, like your your, yeah. your image. Yeah, and I realized, man, I'm being erased out of my own band. You know, <laughs> it was kind of like, what? Like the incredible shrinking guy, you know. And so that... You know, that's a question I like to ask sometimes. Yeah. But uh, other than that, you know, How's, I, I, I'll leave you with this. Yeah, yeah. I don't wish anyone badly. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah. How is your health? Not so great. <laughs> and and, and it, it, it really played a really important part in realizing that, um, that uh, in fact, when I got some news in my own health situation, um, I went back and, and really rewrote a lot of the book hmm. because what happened was all of a sudden it changes your whole frame of reference. And in looking back, you know, in that hindsight being 2020 world and knowing what I knew in my own situation, man, I had so much more respect for Jeff and, hmm. not, and I didn't realize because everything was taken for granted. I didn't think of Jeff as a blind guy. I didn't think of Jeff as a guy who, you know, lost his eyes to cancer um, because Jeff so fascinated me he was my hero um i just never thought of him that way and yet here he is fighting this fight that i just i'm embarrassed to say i didn't i didn't understand that yeah and 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 when my own situation came along it was like man this sucks for myself and then all of a sudden the light bulb goes off wow Jeff had to deal with this from Makes the time sense he now, what he, yeah, 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 from the time he was six months, a year old. Yeah. You know, I've only been dealing with a year and a half, and I can tell you it sucks. For sure. But, but at the same time, it also gave me the balls to say, well, I don't know which way my situation's going, so I'm going to write the damn book because I, I don't want someone else telling my story. Yeah. What's, your, what's your favorite memory of you and the band? Uh, you know, if, if you could pick one. Wow, that's hard, because I I, I, I I, mean, we had so, you know, amongst the bad, there was way more good. Um, Jeff laughing and cheating at cards, I think, is one of my favorite ones. Um, the Braille, um, right? The Braille the ones? Braille, the Braille cards. <laughs> and, uh, and the shooting the duck game, that always cracked me up when we were on the bus. Um, you know. Um, Did you ever wonder, is he really blind? Sure, man. <laughs> I, 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 sure, even I thought that a bunch of times. I mean, obviously, the guy was blind, but, but I mean, he was... He just, I mean, fuck, man, he'd be driving a car. Or he'd be out, we'd be out in the middle of a lake out in BC, he'd be driving the boat. I mean, you know, I mean, he did more stuff than sight of people. So, you know. That's crazy. And, he lived a life. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, uh, he was a burning star. And, mm. and when he wrote uh, One Foot in the Gravel, I, I sometimes think now, I wonder if Jeff sort of had a sense that, uh, you know, he wasn't going the distance. Because, man, you can never get him to eat a, a, a vegetable. Forget about it, you know. <laughs> um, it wasn't going to happen. And, uh, um, you know, I miss the guy. And contrary, uh, am I griping or complaining? Yeah, I'm a little ticked off about a few things, but that's not what the book's about. The book's about three nerds. Um, and I say it in the book. 
I mean, short of having started a computer company, I, you know, I don't think the three of us are going anywhere, no. but, but we got this band cooking and we got to live the life and uh, I have no complaints. And I, 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 I was honored to be part of it and I, I hope someday that that Jeff does end up and maybe the band along with him in a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If nothing else, I hope people just start remembering. Yeah. And the fact I'm sitting here with you, you know, the mission continues. Absolutely. Favorite song? For me, it was Always See the Light. Because, oh, yeah. um, because when he, I mean, this is how Jeff was. We were doing all these covers. And, and one day we were talking. I said, man, you know, we got to write some original songs. And we're in Chicago's, I think, upstairs. We're just hanging out. And uh, he goes, bam, bam, bam. I'm like, what? Joe was started riffing. He had that song the whole time. I had no idea, you know. And he had another one called uh, Adriana, which to this day I think was a fantastic song. And uh, and uh, that's when we said, okay, now we have our own record label, and we put out our own single. And then a guy called Alan Resnick uh, from Ryerson, I believe, got a crew together. They shot the shot See the, the Light video. And uh, next thing, we're in Much Music, and we're getting played on the radio. And here we are, Forte Records. You know, we didn't know anything about anything, but we're on the radio, and our videos getting played. Uh, in fact, a, a, a big influence in this book is a guy called uh, Mike uh, Campbell, who was the original Mike and Mike show. The Mike, yeah, yeah. Mike on, on Much Music. Yeah. And, and Mike was there day one. He followed us literally across the country. He saw the good, the bad, the, the ugly. I mean, he was there for it all. But... We were lucky that Much Music came along at that time, and they're looking for content. And that video, I mean, later hundreds of thousands of dollars were spent on making videos, but to this day, that $500 video is my favorite video by far. I mean, we weren't going to get any fashion awards. We looked like, um, <laughs> you know, but that, that aside, it was, a, it, it, it was the rawness of, of Jeff and the band and a bunch of guys going, fuck it, let's go for it. Yeah. And uh, I love it. That's, that's my favorite. I'd just like to say, um, Along, along this, 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 whatever you call it, book tour, um, I, I, I was lucky enough to sit down with a guy called Michael Barkley, who's a great Canadian writer um, from the days of McLean's and many other situations who wrote a recent book on uh, uh, Tragically Hip, which is a Canadian bestseller. And uh, he's also uh, on, on my label, not label, uh, with, this, with the same publishing company, ECW. And... Uh, he was polite enough and nice enough to, to take the time to sit down with me. Though it took me a couple weeks to meet him, and I was kind of like thinking, man, what's, how hard can it be to meet this guy? And now I haven't been at this for a couple weeks. I'm really happy the guy even found the time for it because I understand you know, the schedule he was on. But Michael wrote what they call a one-pager or two-pager about my book, a review. And you know, for what it's worth, I was so privileged to read that, A, he liked the book, but more importantly, I think he really caught the essence of what the book is meant to be and caught the essence of what I was trying to get across about Jeff and the man. And I just, you know, want to give him a shout out. I really appreciate that. Tom, thanks so much, man. My pleasure, brother. I really appreciate you taking the time. Bye.
to Michael Barkley for the opening essay. Michael Barkley is a former guest of the podcast and is also the author of The Never Ending Presence, a story of Gord Downey and the Tragically Hip 